Hi, it's Mike. Sometimes you hear podcasters say, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Does it? I think it might. Why not try it? Please follow us and do recommend the show to others. And if you can, leave a review in your own mind, in your own hearts, or especially on one of those big websites that keeps the reviews and shows them to the rest of the public. Hi, it's Saturday, and welcome to the show, Rook. That's what they say in professional sports when a newcomer or a rookie is first introduced into the ways of action. I bring this up because this is NBA All-Star Weekend, and we bring you two basketball-themed segments. Every week on the Saturday show, we bring you one from the vaults and one from the week. And our one from the week is bonus, all bonus coverage of Bob Delaney, who has a lot of things, and he was on the show this week, and he talked a lot about his insight into trauma and informing the people, the frontline responders for COVID. He's also worked with soldiers, but before that, he was a very big-time NBA referee, a very important NBA referee, and then an SEC referee. And so I used my time with him to pepper him with some questions specifically about basketball and about refereeing, and uh, I put those here. That's for you. Those are bonus segments. Soon, we will have our own repository for such bonus segments. We won't be putting them in the Saturday show. If this is the sort of thing that you like and adds value, look for that major announcement occurring on Tuesday. Another basketball interview I did, and one of my favorites, with one of my favorite players, was Felipe Lopez. I interviewed him about a documentary, about a 30 for 30 documentary that came out in 2019. Felipe Lopez was a great player for St. John's. This is Saturday. Today, I will be at the St. John's versus Creighton game. It might not seem exciting to you. It certainly is a little less than exciting for my two sons who I'm taking there. But every year we make a pilgrimage. My father went to St. John's. I went to a college with no football team. And uh, a basketball team that definitely played basketball, but not the sort of team you'd go and root for because, you know, Division Three. So as far as major college sports, St. John's suffices is the only one that I'm really into. It also uh, gives me a bond with my, I guess, outer borough Italian heritage, let's say. Uh, Felipe Lopez was just a wonderful guest and a wonderful guy. And I hope you like that interview, too. So here's Felipe, followed by NBA ref Bob Delaney. Basketball began in Springfield, Illinois. Soon thereafter, New York City took it over. If you look at the list of the top basketball players in high school in the United States from New York City, it's almost the list of the greatest basketball players ever. You have Lou Alcindor, Stephen Marbury, Billy Cunningham, and you know who was the number one player in the country when he was a high school senior? Felipe Lopez. Unlike all these other guys, he is from the Dominican Republic. He went to St. John's where I, as a young guy in my 20s, rooted my heart out for him. He is now the subject of a third 30 for 30 documentary on ESPN called The Dominican Dream. It's great, and I'll tell you why it's great. Even if you say to yourself, wait, Felipe Lopez, do I remember him from his four seasons averaging about six points a game in the NBA? 
But the person of Felipe Lopez comes through. In fact, the person of Felipe Lopez is right here next to me. Thanks for doing the documentary and thanks for coming in, Felipe. Thank you so much for having me out here. It's an honor. <laughs> when they approached you, did they? how did they say what the story was that they wanted to tell? Did they want to tell a story of a great high school kid who was a little disappointing? Did they want to tell an immigrant story? How'd they say the story was going to go? Well, honestly, uh, initially, I, I really didn't want to do no story. Right. I'm like, you know what? After the uh, uh, Sports Illustrated cover, I think I had enough, uh, you know, uh, publicity. But uh, the way that uh, the producer, Jonathan Hack, uh, uh, presented it to me, it, it was really appealing. Uh, you know, he 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 showed me a video of his great great grandfather uh, selling newspaper in front of city hall, and he just started talking about how he was the 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 reason why his family and his family came to the United States. So, you know, the whole immigration process was something that I, I was able to relate with, and yeah. you know, the, the story talks about my history playing basketball, but at the end of the day, he also touch on elements that is really important to me as far as like being an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. So you are on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which the documentary kind of surprising to me, but then, you know, I'm in my 40s. I don't need it, but maybe someone in their 20s does. The documentary points out, oh, this was a really huge deal being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah, it's the biggest deal in the world. And there you were before you even put up your first shot at St. John's. Did it become sort of a blessing and a curse to be on that cover? Yeah, definitely. Both. Uh, the the blessing because there I am five years after I, I come to this country, barely speaking the language that I'm speaking right now, but portraying a different type of image to the Dominican Republic, to the Dominicans in New York. Right. You know, you talk about New Yorkers, uh, we recall, you know, Washington High as being one of the area where the most drugs were being sold. So it, it was pretty groundbreaking and, and special to me because I grew up around that time. I knew what it was to, to say that you were Dominican and kind of had to hide a little bit of your identity because you didn't want to be associated with, with everything that was happening. And once you sprang onto the scenes, there was no hiding because fans of yours with the Dominican flag would show up at every game, like two or three whole sections of wherever you're playing, Madison Square Garden oh, yeah. or the Rose Hill Gymnasium in Fordham, just overrun by Dominican people. The emergency aisles were packed with people sitting in it. The sidelines were packed. It was just an unbelievable high school atmosphere. And <laughs> sophomore year, we had to move them to bigger venues. 16, 17 years old, you're selling out Fordham, you're selling out Iona. That's how much a draw he was. Drums, dancing. I mean, if they could have barbecued a chicken at the stadium, they would have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we probably barbecued it outside anyway. <laughs> so it's a whole party. Where it was a went. party. That's and that's a sense of being uh, being Latino, being Dominican. We we have a sense of just being happy. Uh, our music pretty much expressed it for us. You know, we 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 brought that kind of energy to the scene. But my game was kind of a little bit electrifying at the same at the same the same way. So. There were the other schools, which is every other school in the country, recruited you, and Bobby Knight showed up, and Kansas, and North Carolina, and these are all great schools, but I'm just kind of wondering how you and your Dominican fan base would do in Bloomington, Indiana. Exactly. I don't know Exactly. I don't know if it's quite a Exactly. Right <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I, I visited UCLA. I went to Kansas. I went to Florida State. They're just not another place like New York. 
You yeah. know, it's just such a magic about being in New York. And even though, you know, four years at St. John's, I, I felt those were my best years. You know, if you take away you mean basketball, where you, where you enjoyed yourself, I really most, truly yeah. enjoyed it. You know, my four years at St. John's, they, they, I consider them the best years of my life. You know, the relationship and the friendship that I was able to build, you know, uh, I, I, I became a man, you yeah. know, uh, those four years at St. John's because a lot of the responsibility that now I carry on, I learned how to deal with those things at St. John's. Plus, the fact that I ended up with a degree. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was it was what they always say that a player or what they don't say it now so much. But when you were younger, the line was, you know, you go for four years, you get your degree and then you'll be set up for life. And people nod and give it lip service. But you did it. You actually did it. And you were turning down, as the documentary shows, million dollar contracts along the way to do it, to really get your degree, because it was obvious that it was really important to you it's and your family. Honor to my family, my, my mother being a teacher for 25 years, my father being a, a, a a blue-collar worker, it almost felt like within the family, it's really important sometimes to to be that one person that breaks a cycle. Yeah. You know, my, my, my mother never graduated, but she gave me the opportunity to go to school. My father as well. They sacrificed for us. You know, in the documentary show, when I graduated, when I graduated, my whole family surround me, like, and they feel like they graduated as well because, in a sense, they did. Yeah. You know, I, I, I ended up my career. I tore my ACL, but... Everything that I have done, it have been based on the fact that I was able to get my degree. From a strict dollars and cents point of view, it wasn't the right choice, though, was it? I mean, I looked over your salary for four years, and you get the minimum for someone who's drafted in the first round. It's around 500000 a year. And then because of your injury, you can't, you can't play anymore. Mm-hmm. If they were offering you a million to go overseas, or if you could have been a top five pick after your freshman year, or even after high school, would you have made more money playing basketball, do you think? Let me, let me just, okay, let me, let me rephrase a little bit on that. Yeah. How many other athletes have made way more than I but have ended up being bankrupt. Absolutely. So, you know, in a sense, it's like we're we looking at situations on how to be successful. Not what you to, make, to, it's what you keep. Yeah, It's what you keep. Yeah. It's how you handle it, how you live your life. You know, I didn't have, I didn't make all the millions, so I didn't need to buy a big, big mansion. Do you think going to college for four years helped you? Yes. Help you keep your money. The money he help you understand your value and how to, you know, manage yourself a little bit better than than just, you know, live your life recklessly. Do you think if you were the same kind of number one player in the country recruit today that your college? I'm gone. Or, I'm gone. Don't ask me that question. Gone right. after a year. I'm gone. Yeah. I'm, I'm gone quick because we're living at a different time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're living at a time where you're able to to know what KG did from high school, what LeBron have done from high school. But, you know, before me, there was no one else. Right. So I, I could have been that there one da- guy. There was Daryl I could have been that Jonathan. Moses you remember Malone. Jonathan? That kid that went from high school and ended up, like, playing, like, one or two years? Right, right. Or, Jonathan Bender. Right, Jonathan Bender or Corleone Young. Remember exactly. this guy? Yeah. You know, so I could have been that as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, okay, you pretty popular. You probably made some good money. But it's about the game and what you were able to provide yourself. I hated being in the bench. Like my few years in the league, yeah. I was in the bench. I'm working extra hard because I'm not a bench player. Like, don't tell me I'm a bench player. I don't believe you. Yeah. You know, so that's 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 what happened. I, I, I really didn't have a blueprint as far as like, oh, yeah, I should go to the league from high school because such and such did it. Uh, and, and, and now it's so easy for any guys to have a little bit of talent and be like, 
Yeah. They're gone. I also think just from an NBA perspective, so let's say you are a guy who's not seen as a starter. A way to work your way into a lineup is have a niche. Be a shooter, be a stopper on defense. But you weren't that. You were a guy who always had the ball, dominated the ball, made things happen with the ball. Yeah. Maybe these days they'd teach you, you'd work on your three-point shooting or they'd teach you some other aspect of the game and find a way to use your unique athletic talents. Well, I agree with you. Because, you know, being a player that dominated so much, you go into the league now, and um, I'm the 24th pick. And my contract is barely a, less than a million dollars. Yeah. And, you know, I'm playing with KG. KG's making 25 mil. Uh, Chauncey Billups is making, uh, I don't know, 10. Wally Serbia is making 12. And then there's me, less than a million. The option, I'm the number fourth option. So yeah. don't think that I'm going to be taking all the shots that I want to because I don't have the green or neon light that some of these other players have. What really helped me a lot to just play aggressively all the time was the fact that I was a little bit ignorant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have no clue who I'm playing. Right. You could be Alec Iverson or whoever. I, you know, yeah. my mind is not thinking about who you are. It's like what you're capable of doing yeah. because I want to make sure that I put the best effort into this game. Yeah. And that was the only thing that I, I knew how to do and, and helped me to really just focus on every single day, making sure I was the best player on the basketball court. Did you trash talk when you played? Nah. I would hype my own self up. You know, I would just, you know, just just do like a Dominican, you know, merengue or, or, or bachata uh-huh, or something. Uh-huh. But it was not like to taunt the other person, just to keep myself hyped. Do you think that you came a little early? Because we saw Victor Cruz as a giant. He put he did the merengue and he became he this the huge salsa. thing. He did the salsa. Yeah. Maybe people didn't know what you were doing. I mean, now nah, we're, embrac- had no clue. we're embracing Latin culture a little yeah, more. Yeah, but again, I had a band. Yeah. I had people with the with, with right. the uh, guida, with the with the congos and everything. So I'm listening to the music while I'm playing. <laughs> so you know, once in a while, the music would hit me. I would like have to do a couple of moves. <laughs> Are your friends or your teammates from St. John's, they're in the documentaries, and in yeah. Hamilton, the great center, Tariq Turner, who I think still broadcast the games. Are you still close with those guys? Yeah, those, that, and those, that's the reason why I say that, you know, St. John's provided me with the best years mm-hmm. because those are really my brothers. You know, those are my, my family. Uh, we have stayed close throughout the years. Everyone have gone to do their own career, but, you know, at least we always found time to, to make sure that we embrace each other, we get together, go out. Uh, we give each other, you know, advice on whatever things that could be. But we understand why we're doing it, you know, because we all went through the same struggle. Uh, and even though, you know, the documentary is about, you know, Felipe Lopez and everything else, they all embrace and they all, like, you know what I'm saying, they they felt the pain and they all, like, kind of just wanted the best, not just for myself but for all of us. Yeah, they wanted, I think they wanted to... Well, provide testimony for you and who you are. They wanted to be part of this. I got the sense that they wanted to be part of the documentary. So the Felipe Lopez story is remembered as not this great high school phenom who maybe was a little disappointing in the pros, but the Felipe Lopez story is a guy who used basketball to get a lot of happiness out of life. Let me just say something. I know you say that, you know, a little disappointing in the pro. <laughs> uh, I'm very proud of what I was able to do in the pros That's because a, yeah. there was no other... Latino, doing it the way I was doing it. You know, when when I went to Arena, even though I wasn't playing, I would see people from Mexico, Venezuela, uh, Panama, with a Dominican flag. So it, it obviously it meant something for a lot of these people that did not have a voice. So maybe sometimes the participation in the court 
where might it be important for people that have pulled that that tag that I should be in the the next Michael Jordan. But to that Latino family that went to see the game, yeah. just the fact that they saw someone that it looks like them, it spoke the same language, to them that was a success. Yeah. You know, so like it, the story that the documentary is bringing out is that success could be carried out in a whole different way. Um, tell me about the club team that you fund and tell me about the club team that you fund the Dominican and where do you live most of the time? So I'm here. I'm in New York. Uh, I'm in the Bronx. Do you live near Felipe Lopez Way? Uh, we couldn't find the sign. I know, but uh, we couldn't find the what sign. One hundred fifty second. One hundred and fifty. Yeah, in Grand Concourse. <laughs> but I lived on one fifty first during my high school. I, I moved out from there. But um, uh, so yeah, I'm in the Bronx, and, and I split my time a little bit uh, to the Dominican Republic because I, I, I just found the time to to be the president of of my club. I'm running a, a program that that holds over 300 kids, so I'm giving back what I was giving. Man, I, I honestly, I'm blessed, and in, in, in the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm so involved into the community is because I remember being a young kid and not having nothing, you know, and, and, and it's the opportunity for the kids to just be able to be dreamers. You know, I'm so I'm so happy that, you know, I was able to make that contribution to my to my to my community. Yeah, what NBA team do you root for? Right now, man, I'm just hoping that the New York Knicks, we get it together, man. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> we have had some really tough years lately, man. I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you. But, uh, you know, Golden State is really a team that really impressed me because of how selfish they, they play. Yeah. Uh, you know, even when they incorporated KD into the, the squad, you can tell that they, that KD needed to learn how to play with those guys mm-hmm. because they just so unselfish. If you played for them, can you imagine the lanes they would open for you? Oh, the man. wide open spaces. Right. I'm telling you, <laughs> I, I, on that team, I would not need to take a jumper at all. <laughs> just drive, just drive and kick out in case I needed to kick out. All right, number thirteen from Rice High School in St. John's, Red. Storm during his time there. Felipe Lopez, the Dominican dream is on ESPN now. Felipe, great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Is this uh, Michael Jordan care frontating you? <laughs> that, that Michael is carefrontating. <laughs> and is this Rick Mahorn and Patrick Ewing carefrontating each other? <laughs> Rick and uh, Rick and Patrick got into a fight. It was a, a Nets game. Uh, Ricky was playing for the Nets and Patrick. That took place in the first half. Yeah. And then I learned later that they were in the back having a sandwich and, and, and watching the rest of the game together. Doesn't surprise me. Were the okay? Let's just do a couple rapid round questions about things that occurred to me as I read your life story. Were the Bad Boy Pistons badder than any other teams that you confront? Care fronted? If, if if you could referee the Bad Boy Detroit Pistons, you could referee anywhere. They made me a better referee. Yeah, really. Yeah, there were there was a, a challenge. Every night, it was a challenge to be able to go up and down the floor with them. They tested it and pushed the boundaries on everything. Was the malice in the palace uh, two-part question? Was there any refereeing culpability, and that did that change refereeing afterwards? 
I, I, I think that um, I don't know that it's referee culpability. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if I could take a minute and just explain, that was a time frame when it was an out of uh, the game was over, right? It was like a 20 yeah, point yeah, game yeah, at seconds, the time. Yeah. And it was a time when season ticket holders would leave. And then people that were sitting up in the less expensive seats would come down, and that's right. not allowed anymore. And so you had a different crowd around courtside than you would normally have. What about what do you think about there's uh, when you watch an N- NBA game, unlike college, there's a lot of discussion going on between co- between referee and player. And mostly that's good. You know, the players deserve the respect of an explanation and maybe they'll understand it. Two part question. Should more that is not allowed in the college game. They'll tee you up for looking at you sideways. Should college change a little bit? Um, I, I think that our, you know, sports are a microcosm of society. And, uh, you know, since social media and Twitter and everybody thinks they have an opinion and it matters. And so um, I think that's expanded and it it shows up with athletes. And so there's more conversation taking place than in the era that I was uh, more of my heyday. I started in 87 and went to 2011 on the floor. And then I went into the office from 12 to 17 as the director of officials. But I, I agree with you. I think that there's more and more conversation being had and, and, and at times it's okay, but at other times it's just complaining and uh, just go about playing the game. Right. You don't, you don't get owed an explanation. Like you should know if your hand hit the other guy's wrist. Um, do you think that that leads to more whining? Uh, just the, just the notion that, okay, I owe you an explanation for everything and we're going to have a big conversation. So therefore every call is a thing of dispute. Yeah, I I think it just it, it it breeds more complaining, 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 and so. Uh, but you also can't turn around and hit everybody with a technical uh, every time that somebody says something to you. So there's a balance that has to take place. I believe in proper authority behavior. We have to figure out how to be able to adjudicate. And um, I say you become a really good professional referee when you understand how to navigate the will to win. The will to win is coming at you. Every yes. call you make is interpreted as getting away in the way of their win. Right. These guys, they have such passion, legitimate passion. You have to acknowledge that. I yes. got it. Um, do makeup calls exist even on a subconscious level? Um, I, 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 I don't think so. I think we're trained well enough at, at the professional level to understand and compartmentalize and push away. Once you make a bad call, it's a bad call. But if you make if you make up calls, you're going to go up and down the floor. Uh, you're going to be making up calls all night long. And the old adage, two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah. And so you just have to let it f- Go and, and continue to try and be as, as good as you can be. I, I don't believe that it ever entered into my mind to, of a makeup call. Can a good ref be quote unquote worked, which is when the, they always say coaches are working the refs, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, trying to get the call for the next time. Does that work? I, I don't think so either. I, I, I think that there's a discipline within us uh, to know it, it, maybe early on, it could happen subconsciously. Uh, like a young referee, you, you mean? Yeah, yeah, early on in your referee career. Right. Because now you're in environments where you've been watching this on TV. I mean, you know, the first time I met Julius Irving, I'm like looking at him like, <laughs> this is Dr. J. And yet I realize I have to go to work. I had Kobe's game, 61 points in, in Madison Square Garden. 
I didn't know it was a, I didn't know he had that many points right. until after the game. Right. Because you're so focused on each play and getting up and down the floor. It wasn't until Spike started yelling it's a Roger Maris game that I didn't even understand what was going on. Spike and you have had not confrontations, but he's giving you crap, right? Yeah, I had a horrible call against the Knicks back in the day. Uh, they were playing Miami. I wiped out a basket on Allen Houston before we had replay, and it should have been good. And it changed the, the playoff settings, and, and the Knicks ended up on the road in the playoffs in the first round at Indiana. And as I walked out on the floor, Spike was there in Indiana is yelling at me, we should be in the garden because of you. We're over here. I say, Spike, I've seen every one of your movies, and they ain't all hits either, brother. Yeah. I remember that game uh, against the Heat. Terry Cummings puts up a leaner. Everyone's batting it around. And you're right. Um, though you weren't right in the moment. No, Alan I wasn't Houston, right in the moment. Alan Houston gets it wrong. Can your other, did your co-referees see it differently? Or once you blow the whistle and wave it off, that's it? No, we had a discussion. Um, and and it, it came down to um, U Evans, the late U Evans, Hall of Famer U Evans was the crew chief. And um he um, he agreed with me that it was late, and um, Leroy Richardson was the other referee, and and he thought it was good, and it was like a two to one vote, and Leroy was right. Yeah, but the mechanics of that are you're listening for the horn or watching the uh, twenty four o'clock light up uh, to see that the ball leaves his hands in time. Yeah, back in the day, it was uh, watching uh, for the light because the horn sound travels you know from up above yeah. and it's going to be more time so the light was what you were going by and um, yeah lightning lightning comes quicker than thunder yeah. yes yes <laughs> so exactly. the the other thing though is now that would be reviewed i think it might be humanly impossible to see differences of 0.2 seconds when you're trying to triangulate between two visual sources the hand and the light i mean literally you were asked to do an impossible thing so even though you had a great comeback to spike lee in the moment were you how much beating yourself up over that one did you do a thing that was really not within your control it was horrible i mean i, I remember it was two days of just uh you know at one point i had to stop watching tv or wow. reading newspapers right because you're beating yourself up and it's reinforcing it and, you, and as i said earlier you just can't wait to get back on the court and, and get at it again um but pushing through those kinds of things i think adds to the resilience levels adds to the growth and development uh, of an individual because you're you're more cognizant and more aware of what potentially could take place and so you have a higher level of of focus levels or concentration levels, whatever we want to call it, um, to, to, to make sure that doesn't happen again. You can make one mistake. I always say the word fail, first attempt in learning, F-A-I-L. Um, it, it's not a failure until you are. I, and I just wanted to ask you about the undercover work. I made a comment about you had to worry about a bill of lading. Now, unlike a real business owner, you had people back. I, I assume you had people back in uh, the F, with the FBI in the New Jersey office who were taking care of most of that stuff. But some of your day must have actually been spent on what a real trucking company owner would worry about, right? Absolutely. I mean, at point at some points, I was more concerned about the trucks <laughs> than it was about making cases because it actually becomes like competitive about the trucking business, right? I mean, we were the uh, house trucker for um, Frigid Freight Company, which is which was a Genovese controlled uh, company that hauled 
frozen delicacies like uh, lobster and shrimp. And so we had to have refrigerated loads. And so all of these kinds of things were going on all the time. Mike, even when it like I never thought I'd get to the NBA. That wasn't a goal. I always thought I'd be a state trooper for life. After I surfaced from the undercover job, within three weeks, four weeks, uh, I got a call from a trucking company in, in Jacksonville, Florida, offering me a position as vice president of a real <laughs> trucking company. The guy said to me, if you could run a trucking company under those situations, you could run my trucking company easy. That is true. <laughs> that, that is an excellent point. And last, I was, I'll be honest, I... I had known you from the NBA. I didn't know you have the the sidelines. And when I got pitched on the idea, just the totality of your experience was captivating. But without the NBA as part of uh, your resume, if you would, whatever, work for a trucking company or be a consultant, do you think that you'd have the either the fame or acclaim or have been the opportunity to do what you've been doing for the last 10 and 15 years, just really focusing on mental health and PTSD? No, I, I, I really believe that when I look back at my life, that while that undercover job was about putting away bad guys, and we did, that it was really about me going through that to be in a position to help a lot of good people. And then moving into the NBA gave me the opportunity to have a platform, as they call it today. Uh, I don't know, you know, the kids all call about the platform and their legacies. I, legacy, I'm not worried about. The platform and the door opening. Those three letters next to my name, NBA, open a lot of doors and put me in a position to help a lot of good people today. I spent time with our special forces this past week, and I was with Green Beret team talking about this very subject that you and I have shared. And uh, this week coming up, I'll be doing grand rounds for hospitals and speaking to our healthcare community. So you talk a lot, you write a lot about uh, the trauma uh, of a job. You mentioned, you know, a policeman who might be, or a police officer who might be investigating some horrific scene and they experience trauma. This is a time when the police, to, to a large extent, because of the misdeeds of some, to some extent, just because we stereotype, it's very traumatic and stressful time for police officers. And it does seem like many of us do not care, or if the message is, you know, police recruitment is down, so be it. We don't extend the same sort of um, sympathy even, which isn't, I know, the most exalted uh, emotion, right? Empathy is better, but we don't exalt that. We don't extend that same sort of sympathy towards what police are going through as we do the heroes, heroes in the military, the heroes on the front line. Okay. Doesn't, isn't that dangerous? Doesn't that create more of an opportunity for further misdeeds, do you worry about that? Yeah, my concern is that um, this is becoming. It, it almost reminds me of like the Vietnam era with with our soldiers that they were vilified or disrespected, and I think that that's taking place within the law enforcement community now. And um, the hope is that we create an understanding that teachers, nurses. Uh, police officers, firefighters, military are noble professions, and we want the best of our best to be in those positions. I'm not so sure that we're getting that right now. We're getting bullies with a badge. We're getting people that are not as interested in going into those professions, and we have to find ways to create a better environment for recruiting the best of our society into those positions. 
we do have tremendous men and women serving us uh, in law enforcement. But they're getting painted with the same brush because of those that are taking actions that are not anywhere near honorable. Bob Delaney is a former NBA referee, a former New Jersey state trooper, and his latest book is titled Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Frontlines. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you, Mike. And that's it for the Saturday show. One more note. When I worked for NPR, they used to always say, well, you have to do a spot, you know, a new spot on the All-Star game. And I say, sure, you know, uh, it's not unimportant. But you realize that of the thousands of professional basketball games played each year, this is the one that doesn't count. Just in terms of pure news value, the Detroit Pistons against the Oklahoma City Thunder actually has more real value in the real standings. But we'll cover the All-Star game. That's fine. I no longer work for NPR. And now I use the All-Star game as a jumping off point, as a peg, as they say in the news business, to air old Felipe Lopez and new Bob Delaney interviews. The Gist is produced by producer Corey Wara and senior producer Joel Patterson. And we will talk to you not Monday, but Tuesday as we honor our presidents. Also major announcement Tuesday. Did I mention that? Major announcement. One second, and Michael Jordan is angry at Bob Delaney. Yeah, well, he thought he got hit. The ball was definitely way short on the release. But if, if it happened, it could possibly have happened in the lower body. Now, see, now he's really hot because he wanted to call.